Good morning. Hey, uh, if you see a black Bible around the room and you have your Bible with you, you have your phone Bible with you, whatever it is, whatever form you use, Galatians chapter 3. And the black Bible's around the room. It's on page 914. Would you go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1? Uh, Galatians is the story. It's, it's the Apostle Paul writing to a group of churches who have been infiltrated by false teachers. And these false teachers are telling the Galatians that they must obey God and believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. The gospel of uh, grace actually says that we are justified, we are counted righteous before God by faith in Christ alone. It's his work exchanged for ours. So in Galatians chapter 3, we can see that the Apostle Paul here, he's, uh, he's a bit excited and he is not entirely happy with the Galatians as they are swerving from the truth of the gospel and he's trying to course correct them. So he starts in verse 1 of chapter 3 by saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you or put a spell on you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain or experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify or count righteous the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith, or the prototype of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, or the law, shall live by the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. Father, would you open our eyes? Would you see that to be a disciple of your son, to be the people of God, it begins by faith in Christ. It continues by faith in Christ. And it will conclude in faith in Christ. Help us to see this and recognize this and realize this in your name. Amen. Christianity is just a bunch of man-made rules. You ever heard this? We hear this in culture, don't we? We hear it in pop culture. We probably have believed it even at one time before faith. We've probably heard our friends, our family say, you know what? It's just a bunch of rules. Christianity is just a bunch of rules. The world misunderstands the gospel of Jesus. The world misunderstands the gospel of Jesus. And I believe, even worse... Many followers of Jesus misunderstand the gospel of Jesus. 
we misunderstand. Many of us in this room, probably to some degree, most of us in this room, all of us in this room, we misunderstand the gospel of grace for the undeserving. And so we neglect the freedom that is offered in the gospel, and we choose the bondage of of rule-keeping in order to make us feel, quote, right before God. I suspect that many of us were drawn, one, to Jesus Christ by the beauty and by the liberating grace that we felt in the gospel. This is how we came in. We came in because we felt the liberating grace of God, favor of God upon us, and sometime soon after that, we shackled ourselves to the cold steel of the law. The gospel of grace is like the click of handcuffs coming open. The law of Moses is like the click of handcuffs cinching down and clicking around our wrists. One offers freedom, one offers liberation, one ushers us into great joy, and the other moves us into despair and bondage and slavery. So many of us, we begin the Christian life by relying on God's provision for us, and then we often continue on in the Christian life by, pri- by trying to prove our own worthiness to God. We fear that if we fall short of his standard, if you and I fall short of his expectations, he will turn us out. How many of you resonate with that? If I fall short of his expectations, if I fall short of his standards, he will turn me out. We functionally believe, we live as though his love toward us is conditional and that we must, in order to stay in his love, to stay in his good grace, we must make ourselves lovable to him. But the gospel of grace for the undeserving is radically different news. According to Romans in chapter 9, God set his saving love on his people before we'd done anything good or bad in order that his purposes in election might stand. And Paul will continue to teach That the receiving of the mercy of God, it doesn't depend on our act of the will. It doesn't depend on human exertion. It depends entirely on God who has mercy. Martin Luther believed that people shouldn't be enticed to the church by the gospel of mercy. And then after believing, be turned toward a false gospel of self-improvement. The law condemns, but the spirit gives life. Paul, at one point in his letter, he's writing a different letter to a church in trouble in Corinth. At one point uh, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, he calls the law, the law of Moses, the civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law, the whole thing that Jews live by, he calls it the ministry of death, quote, the ministry of death. Strong words. That explains the strength of his words, though, here as he's writing to the Galatian churches. They've turned away from faith in the life-giving gospel. And what have they turned to? They've instead turned to obeying rules in order to provide them life. And that's why Paul entertains for a moment even that these Galatians possibly are under a curse. Who has bewitched you? Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Their turn makes so little sense to Paul. And he'll write them at the very beginning of Galatians in 1.6, and he'll say, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in his grace, and you're turning, present tense, to a different gospel. So these Galatians, are, they are not turned. It's not past tense. They are turning to a different gospel. And so what he is trying to do is he is trying to persuade them to resting their faith and their dependence and the whole of the... Their justification, they are hope, he is hoping to turn them back 
to this gospel of grace. And so Paul's tone is desperate. He's trying to wake them up. Right? He's trying to wake... It's like, this letter is like smelling salts for the Galatians. Make no, no mistake here either. The Apostle Paul, he's pleading with them. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly crucified. What he's probably getting at is my teaching was so vivid and your belief was so real that you just glommed on to the gospel and you trusted him entirely for your salvation and for your sanctification. You believed. And so the Apostle Paul says, let me ask you only this then. How did you receive the Holy Spirit whom you now have? And in in six verses, Paul will ask five questions, just rapid fire here. I'm going to summarize some of the questions, but you can see them in the first five or six verses of Galatians 3. What qualified you to receive the Holy Spirit? Galatians, Christians, all of lifers, what qualified you to receive the promised Holy Spirit? Did you earn him or did you hear the gospel and believe, receive it by faith? If your new spiritual birth, if it came by faith, if it came by dependent trust, are you then going to continue on perfecting yourself by your own efforts? Paul will even say, you've already suffered so much for Jesus' sake. You've experienced so much because of your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now for you to turn to the law and away from justification by faith in Christ alone, is all that just a waste now? Is all that worthless? Did that for nothing? The miracles done among you, the Spirit's faithfulness and presence among you, you yourselves are experiencing His work among you. How'd that come? By simple trust, or did you do something to earn that blessing? In verse 6, Paul will answer his rhetorical questions, and he'll appeal to Abraham. He'll say, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, As Paul appeals to Abraham, Abraham is the Old Testament epitome of faith. He's kind of this prototype of of believing and depending upon God God and God explicitly saying, I count my righteous to you. You depend on me. You are declared righteous. I will cover you. I will care for you. It's the exact opposite of what our first parents did in the garden by turning away from Christ and rebelling against God in the garden. They distrusted him. They had no faith, where Abraham is believing God. So to, for Paul to appeal to Abraham here, it's a tactical move. It's a rhetorical move on his part. And I think it's a, it's a brilliant one. These Judaizers, these people have infiltrated the Galatian churches here saying, you've got to be circumcised, physically circumcised, according to the Old Testament law, and you must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. You've got you to obey the whole law. You've got to believe in Jesus. So Paul reaches even further back to Abraham. He reaches beyond the law of Moses, five centuries, 500 years back to Abraham who came before Moses. Why did Paul do this? Paul reaches back to Abraham even before Moses to show that keeping the law was never the way that we would be justified or counted righteous before God. The law was given by God to illustrate the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. It was to show us just how well we measure up. It was to show that our only hope, that our only, that our only hope really is dependence on God's gracious mercy to us. The law was given to us to show our need. That's why it exists for us. 
It doesn't exist so that we would keep it perfectly because none of us can. It exists to show us our need. So, for example, think about a parent-child relationship. How do you know, how is the heart of a child revealed? You can quickly reveal the disposition of a child's heart by giving a command or instruction or setting a standard. They're just like at free play. They're just doing their thing. You don't really know what's going on in them. You say, hey, I want you to take that thing up the stairs, right? Like that comes out of them. You know the disposition of your kid's heart as soon as you give a standard. The law functions for humanity in much the same way. The standard is given to show us the condition of our heart before a holy God. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is kind of, he's, he's tangling with uh, some Pharisees, some, the, some of these religious rulers in Israel. They're like the holy people of the holy people. They're the elite. They're Jews. And what, and what Jesus does as he's talking to them is he compares, he contrasts two different people that are praying. One of them is a, a self-righteous Pharisee, and one of them is a tax collector. So you have this self-righteous Pharisee that is just uh, looking down his nose at everybody. And then you have a tax collector who has basically turned his back on his own people and is exploiting them for his gain. The highest of the high and the lowest of the low. And this self-righteous Pharisee stands there near the temple and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Thank you that I'm not like women. Thank you that I'm not like uh, the ungodly. Thank you that I go to church. Thank you that I give my tithes and offerings. Essentially that I'm not like them. And then this tax collector, he apparently recognizes his state before a holy God. It says, Jesus says that he doesn't even want to look up to heaven, but he keeps his eyes down low and he beats his breast and he has this simple prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus illustrates which one of them was justified. I tell you, it was the second one who was justified before me. The Pharisee thought that he continued on as a quote man of God because of his own righteousness. And the Judaizers were teaching these Galatians to do the same. And so Paul enters in with this letter. No, 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 no. It's not how we're justified. We're justified by faith. See, we can rest on God's Old Testament promises that we are children by faith, not by works. Look at what Paul says in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 3 in Galatians. Paul answers this question here. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, the children, essentially, of Abraham. And the Scripture, Paul says, foreseeing that God would justify or count righteous the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Paul says, it is those who are of faith that are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. Abraham was not an Israelite when God spoke to him. Abraham was a pagan. There were no Israelites. There were no Hebrews. There were no Jews. God spoke to Abraham. Abraham believed him. God told him to leave his country, and God gave him a promise in Genesis chapter 12 that I will make you the father of many nations. Abraham was about 75 years at that time, married and childless. Paul is arguing to these Galatian Christians that the gospel of grace through faith was prophesied and shown to us first through Abraham and that it would come even to the Gentiles, even to those who were not of Abraham's physical lineage, but his spiritual lineage, that is, those who believe. See, Abraham believed the promise of God in Genesis 12. He and his wife were childless, they're elderly, they're as good as dead, 
And God promises that from them, a child of promise would come. And from this child, a Messiah would eventually come. And this Messiah would bless the nations. This Messiah would not just bless the called out Old Testament people of God, the Jews, but this Messiah would bring blessing to the nations, all tribes and tongues, like we sang in the song, Is He Worthy? That's why we have the nations here. We exist as a church family to see, yes, our locale, the inland northwest, but also the nations saturated with the good news of Jesus, and we will play our part in doing so. And as Abraham believed God, 500 years before Moses, God counted Abraham's believing trust as genuine faith, and Abraham's faith was the, the vehicle through which he received righteousness. And then you fast forward a few chapters in Genesis 17, and God would make a covenant with Abraham that was visually displayed through physical circumcision. John Stott says, perhaps these Judaizers were telling the Galatian converts that they should become the sons of Abraham by circumcision, by their works, essentially, by their actions. So Paul counters that by saying that the Galatians were already the sons of Abraham, not by circumcision, but by faith in Christ. They're following in his spiritual lineage. The ESV study Bible says that Abraham is the father of God's people, not because he is their biological ancestor, but because he has a family of spiritual children who follow in his footsteps by believing as he did. Here's the thing. Throughout the Bible, the connective tissue of redemption has always been faith. The connective tissue tissue of our redemption has always been believing God, taking him at his word, looking to him, putting our hope in him. And Paul needs these Galatians to see it and to know it. We aren't one, by, we aren't one to Christ by his grace and then perfected by our effort. The gospel doesn't work that way. That's not how it works. So how does it work? The gospel doesn't work like we think it does. See, our righteousness isn't accomplished by weathering a list of to-dos, do's and don'ts, in order to get a blessing. Our Father is far more kind than Santa Claus. I was thinking about the song, Santa Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list, checking it twice, going to see who's been naughty or nice. And that's the way in which you will get a gift. Our Father is far kinder even than Santa Claus true. I just wasn't going to say it. Through faith, we are justified and can freely receive God's blessing. Look at verses 10 and 12. Hang with me, you guys. We got this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident, Paul says, it's evident, it's plain to see that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting from the Old Testament here. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does the law shall live by the law. You're not living by faith, you're living by sight. To be justified by God is the exact opposite of being condemned. To be justified by God is the exact opposite opposite of being condemned by God. This is why Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because justification is complete, instant, and final. The people of God who have looked to be saved 
by faith in Christ are justified, are secure. To be justified is the exact opposite of being condemned. John Stott says that to be justified is to be declared righteous. It's to be accepted. It's to be brought in. Listen to this. And it's to stand in God's favor and under his smile. To be justified is to stand, to exist, to live your life under the smile of God. We all have this inherent desire within us to live in harmony. We have a desire to live in harmony with one another, with creation. But ultimately, I think we have a desire to live in harmony with our very creator. We long to live under the smile, do we not? And so many of our hearts fall based on our works because we believe that by our works we're justified. And so when we ask how your spiritual progress is, your your face falls because you don't believe as though you're living under the smile of God. The doctrine of justification says this to you. God's smile is upon you. God's smile is upon you. It's upon you. It's upon the person in your chair. If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the Father raised him from the dead, Paul will say here it's evident based on the Galatians' own experience and the promises of God to Abraham that nobody, no one is justified by the law but instead justified through faith. And then Paul quotes an Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk. Everybody say Habakkuk. Habakkuk. There's a new one for you, right? It's a strong name if anybody's having a kid. Habakkuk declares, the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous person shall live by his faith. He's saying this 400 years, 500 years before Jesus comes. Faith in what? Faith in whom? Faith is our trust, rested and relying on the promises of God and on the direction of God. Think about Abraham. He heard God speak to him in Genesis 12. God promised that Abraham would be made into a great nation. And then, then Abraham did what God asked of him. 25 years later, God spoke again. Abraham and Sarah, husband and wife, old as dirt. Turned the lights down low, put the slow music on, got frisky, and made a baby. Obedient to God's promise. Believing that God would bring them progeny, would bring them someone out of their lineage, would give them a son who would carry on this blessing that God spoke, that he would bless the nations through them. God told, fast forward a few years, Genesis chapter 22, God told Abraham to take his son Isaac, now grown, up to a mountain and to sacrifice him to test his loyalty. Abraham did so, but he didn't have to sacrifice his son because at the last moment, God provided an acceptable substitute foreshadowing the coming Christ who would be our substitute. God directed. Abraham followed him in trust. Abraham rested the weight of his trust on the mercy of God. And that's our work, to rest our trust on the mercy of God to put our hands out open, empty, and to receive God's blessing of justification. And then when he tells us to do something, when he calls us to obedience, we follow because he never fails his people, ever. He will not. He's worthy. The pursuit of righteousness by rule-keeping is to attempt to do the work of salvation by ourselves. 
to pursue righteousness by keeping the rules, by obedience, is to, to attempt to do the work of salvation by ourselves. And this is the default of our hearts. We never drift toward righteousness by faith. We drift to finding our righteousness in something other than Jesus Christ. That's our drift. That's where our heart naturally goes. I've got some examples for you to help you discern where you tend to find your personal righteousness outside of Christ. I think these will be convicting, and and one of them probably will not name you, but you'll probably be named by multiple here. I know that I am. Think about where you tend to just rest your confidence on your worthiness or your acceptability to God. Job righteousness? I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. Maybe that's you. Family righteousness? Because I do things right. As a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Theological righteousness? I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Intellectual righteousness, I'm better read, I'm more articulate, I'm more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them. Flexibility righteousness, in a world that's busy, I'm flexible, I'm relaxed, baby. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Thank you that I'm not like them. Mercy righteousness, I care about the poor, I care about the disadvantaged and the way every, the, just the way that everyone else should. What about mercy righteousness? Or that was mercy righteousness. What about legalistic righteousness? I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do. Too many Christians are just, aren't, they're just not concerned about holiness. They're just not concerned about it. Thank you for the fact that I'm not like them. Financial righteousness. I manage money wisely. I stay out of debt. I give my money away. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Thank you that I'm not like them. What about political righteousness? If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate and my issues. Tolerance righteousness? I'm open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus that way, aren't I? And then how about this one? Ministry righteousness. I know how we should follow Jesus and make disciples, and my method is better and more faithful than yours. Thank you that I'm not like them. Each of those examples, while kind of funny and we chuckle, like all of that is within us as we're kind of diverting our attention from Christ as our righteousness to something else that we can work toward, prove ourselves, see, and then measurably say, see, I'm not like them. And so all of those examples, they illustrate in some way how we functionally unhitch ourselves from the power of the gospel. They allow us to find righteousness in what we do instead of honestly confronting the depths of our own sin and our own brokenness. And further, what those forms of righteousness do is they provide a way for us of judging and excluding other people. And we use these forms of false righteousness to elevate ourselves and to condemn those who aren't as, quote, righteous as we are. In other words, finding righteousness in these things, it leads us into more sin, not less. It shows us just how far we have fallen. Think about that for a moment. Without a standard like justification by faith or even a standard like the law that we can't even keep, we would think that we were doing pretty well. But once the standard is in view, what is revealed, that we fall horribly short. Listen to what Paul would write to the church in Rome in Romans three nineteen through 25. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law so that, purpose clause, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world 
may be held accountable to God. Paul will go on to say, For by works of the law, by human doing, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There it is. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. That's to say that they're bearing, the law and the prophets of the Old Testament bear witness to the coming Messiah. That is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a what? As a gift, not a wage. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And God the Father put Christ Jesus forward and Jesus went of his own will as a propitiation. That is an appeasement of God's wrath on sinful humanity. Jesus stood in our place, covered us, substituted for us by his blood, and that is to be received by faith, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3. We cannot keep the law, therefore we all fall short of God's standard. And so what we need to do is not to try harder and not to do better at something that we cannot ever do perfectly. What we need is for the teacher, what we need is for the teacher to rescue us from the demands of the test. And that's exactly what we get if we'll take hold of the free offer. Look at verses 13 and 14, and here's where we'll close. Look at the plural, look at the plural nature of how Paul is writing this here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And that is actually a shortened version of what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament direct quote from, I believe, Leviticus 18 says, cursed by God is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we, plural, might receive the promised spirit or the promise of the spirit through faith. In Christ Jesus, the only perfect keeper of the law, that blessing of Abraham, of sonship, of adoption will come to the Gentiles, of which we are all probably a part. And it's through that promise that we receive the Spirit of God through faith. There are five sermons that could be preached out of Galatians chapter 3. I haven't even, I barely even touched on the work of the Holy Spirit. Barely even touched on it. But Christ Jesus has rescued us from the, from the curse that's, that's pronounced by the law. And so when Jesus was hung on the cross, he took humanity. He took upon himself the curse for our rebellion, for humanity's rebellion and our failure. And he kept the rules and he passed the test perfectly and credited to us his passing grade. So here's an exhortation for us this morning. You guys, we have to let go of our personal salvation project. We have to let go of our, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and get it done and make myself acceptable to God. I know I failed 35 times and that's all behind me now. This time I'm going to do it right, God. We have to let go. We have to allow ourselves to fail into the arms of Christ and to let him keep keep us. We've got to die to the standard of the law if we are to live for Jesus Christ. So if we're going to thrive, if we're going to survive as disciples of the real Jesus, we've got to see to it that our self-righteousness fails. 
And when you think about spiritual formation, when you think about the practices of formation, things like reading the scriptures and praying and gathering together in community and keeping a Sabbath that our souls would be rested and other things, it's dawned on me that drilling justification by faith is the first step in all of our spiritual formation. It's the one that we continue to return to. Christ for me. My sin on him, his righteousness on me. Thank you, God, for doing this. We have to let go of our personal salvation project. Listen to Richard Rohr here. This is a quote that he writes. He's a, he's a Catholic mystic. So it's a really interesting quote that I would be bringing for you this morning because his theology is pretty terrible. But he gets this portion of it right. And I think it, is, it, it, it will do well for us to tune in and to listen. We'll be done here in two minutes, three minutes. Listen to this. The next time you don't feel holy, the next time you feel like a failure, so this is for you. The next time that you don't feel holy, the next time that you feel unworthy, the next time that you fail, often you'll feel these things because usually you have sinned. That's true. We're dealing with the truth here. When this experience of the noonday devil, or that's another way to say this, unexpected occurrence shows itself, the ego or or your normal temptation is to be even stricter about following the rules. You think more is better when in fact less is more. You go back to laws and rituals instead of the always risky fall into the ocean of mercy. Yet this is the only, that is the only path toward finding your true righteousness, falling into the ocean of mercy This path to your true righteousness, this is the path where you don't need to prove yourself to God anymore. Where you know, as Thomas Merton put it, it's all mercy within mercy within mercy. It's not what you do for God, it's what God has done for you. Now, this is where I need you to focus. You switch from trying to love God, you switch from trying to love God to just letting God love you. And it's at that point that you fall in love with him. You switch from trying to love him and you relent. You allow him to love you where you are in the midst of your mess. And it's at that point that you fall in love with God. Up to now, you haven't really loved God. You've largely been afraid of God. So you've been trying to prove yourself to him by running back to the law for your justification. See, it's here when we let God love us that we realize that Jesus is the one who has proven his faithfulness to us. So to reiterate what the Apostle Paul said to the Galatians, were you reborn by grace and now you live by the law? Don't run to the law when you fall. Run to Christ who receives you. And here is the upside down way of the kingdom. As you let him love you, glad, even radical obedience will start to flow out of your life. Obedience is not unimportant. It's just not the first step. It's a response to justification, not a means of justification. So when you fall flat on your face this week, when you say things you don't mean and wish you could take back, do not run to do better, try harder. Run to the grace of Jesus Christ for you. Let him love you. Let him tell you what to do. Receive that love. And as he tells you what to do, then move in obedience. Father, make these words sink in in our hearts. Help us to believe. So many 
portions of our hearts still unbelieving, mine included. Walk us in this direction, Holy Spirit. We love you. Amen.